Father, may you truly speak to us this morning. Lord, guide us, instruct us, teach us, mold us. Lord, ultimately transform us more and more into your likeness that we might better know and reflect what it means to know you and to live for you and to glorify you. Lord, teach us now as we open your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we live in a day and a society of self-glorification. From selfies to trophy rooms to heralded degrees to an obsession with climbing the corporate ladder to fears and anxieties about perceptions of one's Facebook page or status to pornography, on and on we go. We live in a day in which many in our culture and our society make ongoing attempts to idolize and to glorify the self. And this is nothing new. Humanity for Many years, ever since sin entered the human race, has attempted to achieve and accomplish success and comfort and fame, to realize ambitions, regardless of the cost to others and even the opinion of others oftentimes. But God is not a fan of pride. He's not a fan of self-glorification, so we ought to be especially on guard against these things. We ought to be especially aware of the truths of God's Word and the reason for our existence, the reason that we gather together as people who call themselves Christians, ought to continually be checking our own motivations and thoughts and perceptions and ambitions against the plans and the ways of the Lord. And not only does pride and self-glorification displease our God, but He will only put up with it for so long. In fact, from Scripture today, we learn that God subdues the proud who ignore His will. God subdues the proud. He overcomes the proud. He intervenes among the proud who ignore His will. I invite you to look with me in God's Word in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 11, as we look at our final message in this particular series from Genesis, before we take a break for Genesis for several weeks. But in our passage for today, a well-known passage of Scripture, we also read about another day, another society, another time, and in human history and in biblical history in which people were living for their own glorification rather than God's glorification, regardless of the plans and the commands of God. I think we have some things that we could learn from it. So let's look together at God's Word. In Genesis chapter 11, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. 
They used brick instead of stone and tar from mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now this is more than just a simple retelling of a story. More than just a simple retelling of an event. This is actually... A literary masterpiece. These few verses. Genesis chapter 11 verses 1 through 9. Filled with word plays. And antithetical parallelism. And a chiastic structure. Hourglass structure. And look with me just for a moment. At what that looks like here in these few verses. Because verses 1 and 2 correspond to the last two verses. Verses 8 and 9. Verses 1 and 2. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So one language, whole world, settled in one place. Now skip down to verses 8 and 9. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. No longer settled, but scattered They stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. The whole world, mentioned again. One language in the beginning, now confused. Confused the language, many languages. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Likewise, next two verses, verses 3 and 4, correspond to verses 6 and 7. Verses 3 and 4, they said to each other, people said to each other, come. Let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, skip down to verse 6. The Lord said. So the people said, verse 3. Now, the Lord said in verse 6. If there's one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this. Then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. Before, the people are saying to each other, come, let us go build this city. Now the Lord says, come, let us go down. Likely a reference here to the Trinitarian nature of God. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Now, in between all of this is verse 5 that really connects the two sections together. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. All that to say, Word of God is not something that is just haphazardly thrown together. It is deep. It is rich. It is recorded in the way that God intended through human authors to convey great truth about who He is and how we are to be in response to who He is. You might say, well, that's, that's nice. That's, that would be interesting in a, a literature class, but What are the truths that we can take away from a passage such as this? Say, that is truth. Hang our hat on that and say, that is biblical truth. That is theological truth. That is practical truth. 
that can be implemented in my own life. And I want to I want to point out two main truths from this passage this morning. The events recorded here and three implications of those truths for our lives as Christians today. And the first truth is this. Human pride is sinful rebellion against God and results in disobedience to the Word of God. Human pride is sinful rebellion against God and results in disobedience to The Word of God. Now, verse 1 in this whole scenario really just gives some background information. Telling us that at that time, everyone, the whole earth, all the people of the earth spoke one language, one common language. And also catches our attention because in the last chapter, chapter 10, if you paid attention there, we read about this table of nations and descendants being scattered all over the place and settling in different Areas with many languages. Something seems out of order here. Why? Why would Genesis 10 come before Genesis chapter 11 in this account of the Tower of Babel? It's believers who believe that not only the Word of God is inspired, but even the compilation of the Word of God is inspired. We can't just say that the author here made a mistake. Got this out of order. Rather, I I think this is intentional irony on the part of the author of Genesis. Because he's already set us up in chapter 10 for the foolishness of the task that the human race is going to set out to do in chapter 11. We already know the outcome of this little attempt. In verses 2 and 3, we get some more background information about people moving eastward and settling in a certain place and coming together and baking bricks because there was no timber or stone available to them in that region, in the area of Babylonia during that day. This is primarily, again, background information. We might ask, what's the big deal? Why did... Why do they get in so much trouble for this? Isn't this a harmless enough plan or task? If we've been paying attention in this book, Genesis, up until this point, a certain red flag ought to already be going up in our minds. Because already, God has told the first family on earth, the first human couple, same thing that then he again commanded the descendants of Noah, Noah and his sons. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, he said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And so now all of a sudden, they're doing the opposite of that. They're not filling the earth, they're settling in one place. Clear disobedience to the word of God. And verse 4 makes this Explicit for us in case we miss it. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we might say otherwise, God's plan, God's command might actually be carried out and we will be scattered over the face of the earth. Two, two sins here that are implied or mentioned. First is this, an attempt at self-glorification. 
A great attempt at pride to build a city and make a name for themselves. Scripture tells us clearly in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. And so here we have this attempt to accomplish something, to make a great name for themselves apart from the plans of God, apart from the will of God, with, apart from any acknowledgement even of the existence of God, we might say. And we already saw an attempt at this in Genesis chapter 4 with the descendants of Cain make a great name for themselves to settle. The second, second sin is this. Disobedience to the command of God. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. Now directly opposing that command, they are settling in one area to accomplish something on their own. This is open rebellion in the context of God's word. We can conclude this is open rebellion against the commands of God. Reminds me of the 1994 movie that came out, The Lion King. Not ashamed to admit it when it came out. I liked that movie. And there's a scene in there in which young Simba, heir to the kingdom, goes against his, his father's wishes, his father's command, King Mufasa's command, and he goes and visits the one area that he's commanded not to visit, not to go in. He takes young Nala along with him. They nearly become lunch for some hungry hyenas, hungry laughing hyenas, before King Mufasa intervenes, rescues them, and he saves them. And then he has some choice words for his son, his young lion cub. He says, Simba, I'm very disappointed in you. Young Simba replies, I know. You could have been killed. You deliberately disobeyed me. I don't know if that sounded very king of the jungle-ish, but just imagine that it did. (laughs) Pretty intimidating. And in a similar way, in Genesis chapter 11, human race, people, are deliberately disobeying the commands and the wishes of God. Pursuing their own ambitions their own aims with no regard to the command of God, no recognition of the will of God and the word of God. Their pride has led to their disobedience to God. Pride does this. We begin to think more of ourselves than we ought. In our presence and our looks and our ambitions, our accomplishments, and our achievements take center stage, then it's a quick line to disobeying the importance of the one who is God and the commands of God. And God will not allow this forever. After all, Jesus said, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be Exalted. God knew the motivations of these men and women in Genesis chapter 11. 
So he intervened, humbling them. Stepping into the situation. Ensuring that his plan and his commands were indeed carried out. And a truth that we learn from his intervention, a truth that we can take away from his action. God's action is that knowing the wicked tendencies of humankind, God will not tolerate proud rebellion. Knowing the wicked tendencies of humankind, the human race, God will not tolerate proud rebellion. Verse 5 portrays the Lord coming down to see this endeavor, coming down to see this tower in this city that the human race is building as if the Lord needed to come down to see it. This is anthropomorphic language giving human attributes and qualities, characteristics to God. I think through that, Scripture is conveying two truths about God. And the first is, is this regarding this situation. It's that Humanity did not achieve their accomplishment. They did not accomplish what they set out to do. They set out to build this great tower that reached to the heavens. In other words, reached to God, but yet God still had to come down to see it. Regardless of our aims, regardless of our pursuits, regardless of how many astronauts we spend, send into space, or how many satellites we send out into the universe, we will never reach the end of God's universe simply because it is God's. He sovereignly rules over it. It's one source noted regarding this attempt. Human attempts to achieve glory, which belongs to God, always fall pitifully short. Human attempts to achieve glory, which belongs to God, always fall pitifully short. So, first thing that we learn from God coming down is that the human attempt fell short. Second thing that we learn is that God already knows. He already knows what has taken place. He knows our actions. He knows our thoughts, he knows our intentions, he knows our ambitions. And in this case, he didn't come down to investigate, he already knows, scripture conveys that clearly, God knows every thought that we have before it's even on our tongue. But he came down to intervene, he came to do something about this. In verses 7 and 8, the Lord came down and confused the language Then he scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. They stopped building the city. I love that line, don't you? You think? They've gone from being settled in one place with one language to now being unable to communicate with each other, scattered, ultimately scattered by God all over the place. Of course they stopped building the city. Of course their ambitions were cut off but it's as if God is saying through scripture that he will not allow pursuits at self-glorification at the expense of his own glorification. God's plans 
will still be accomplished. They will still happen. God subdues the proud who ignore his will. And in this particular case, God's intervention is both punishment for disobedience and we're told a preventive measure. Ensuring that humanity doesn't steep further and further into sin. Knowing that Men are gathered together in one place. Prone to all sorts of sin. All sorts of rebellion against Him. Because our proclivity, our tendency to sin is so deep. So God intervenes and scatters them. God doesn't always intervene. Every single time sin takes place. We know that you imagine what it would be like if he did? If there was some sort of internal detector in all of us, sort of like a lie detector that buzzed every time we thought something we shouldn't or did something we shouldn't. It'd be going off all the time. Because our tendency to sin is, is so deep. It's that deep. But God's plan, His divine plan, we learn in Scripture here and we learn throughout Scripture, will be accomplished It will be carried out regardless of whether or not we're on board. God's plans, His overarching plan, will take place. And this particular episode in Genesis chapter 11 provides the end of common history. Common history of the human race. It ends on a rather ominous note, does it not? From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. No sign of hope. No sign of blessing. It's a glimmer of hope in the genealogy that follows. We dealt with that a little bit last week. The genealogy of Shem that would ultimately lead to Abram. One through whom God would provide a people and call the people to be His people and ultimately bless all people on earth through Him. And from this point on and Biblical history. Babel or Babylon became an archetype for human pride and sin. Selfish pursuits and accomplishments that are contrary to the word of God. And so this particular passage in the context of biblical history served as a warning for Israel not to follow this particular path. And serves as a warning for us today. Not to live a life of self-glorification, but rather to live a life for the glory of God. God subdues the proud who ignore His will. And His identity justifies Him doing this. Because He is the great and mighty God. He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the only one who is totally, fully worthy of adoration and praise and obsession. And because He is worthy of that, let's make His glory the ambition of our lives as people living today. Make the glory of God the ambition of your life. Don't make your own glory the ambition of your life because it's displeasing to God. Don't make your glory the ambition of your life because it's contrary to the will of God. Don't make your glory the ambition of your life 
Because only God is worthy of continual glory, adoration, and praise. Make the glory of God the ambition of your life. As a church, our mission statement declares that we exist to glorify God. We exist to glorify God by knowing God through biblical worship, growing together as disciples of Christ, and going throughout the world with the gospel of Christ. May that be true in our lives together as a church, as a corporate body of believers, and may that be true of our lives as individual followers of Christ. May we live our lives, may we spend our lives for the glory of God. To God be the glory. To God be the glory for the things that He has done. He is worthy. He calls us to live for Him. And as we spend our lives for His glory rather than our own, then what He says will matter to us. And so let's submit to to what He says. Let's submit to the Word of God. Let's obey God's instructions when they are clear. Let's not be like Simba was, ignoring clear commands. Let's not be like the human race was, as recorded in Genesis chapter 11, ignoring the clear instructions of God. When God's instructions are clear, as they often are through His Word, let's submit to them. Let's value them. Because He is God and we are not. Because He is worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our following. He's worthy of our obedience. So let's submit to the Word of God as we make the glory of God the ambition of our lives. And even so, we know because of our bent towards sin, just like people were in that day, that we will fall short. As long as we are in this fallen world, as long as we are in these broken bodies, we will fall short. We'll sin against the Lord. And when we do, we ought to confess it. Confess our pride before God. Confess pride before God. Christian life is an ongoing walk. It's an ongoing endeavor. It's an ongoing commitment. As we live in this tension... This tension between spiritually desiring to please the Lord, obey the Lord, live for the Lord, and physically being drawn to ourselves. And our own gratification, our own exaltation, our own glorification. But we await the day as believers in Jesus Christ gathered here today. We await the day that every knee on earth in the heavens and under the earth, bows before the King who is truly worthy, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who gave His life as a ransom for us. We await that day when every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because one day, When the Lord returns, we will no longer be scattered across the face of the earth. And we will no longer be speaking all different languages where we're not able to understand each other. We will no longer be disconnected from one another. But rather, because of the blood of Christ that was spilled in our place, we will, like believers on the day of Pentecost, be gathered from all over the earth into one place. And we will forever join the heavenly saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was 
and is and is to come. And we look forward to that day. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are found in it. We thank you that you've not left us in the dark as to your desires for us, as to your will for us, as your calling on us. Lord, help us. As we seek to live as your people in this world, as we seek to live for your glory and to submit to your word, Lord, help us to be faithful in our walks with you. Lord, help us to live for you. Speak to us continually through your word. Draw us by your spirit to yourself that we might be found faithful as your people. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you're a loving God, a merciful God. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who forgives. Or forgive us where we fail you and lead us on the path that pursues you for your glory. For you are worthy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things.